0: All of these people that are surrounding me on this project, it really does take a very big team of people to get this across the finish line. So to minimize risk, it really does come down to the people involved. And we have a really great team of different focuses and and I can go to each person whenever we have a problem and keep moving forward.
1: Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate from co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. If you enjoy the podcast, Please take a minute to rate us, and don't forget to like and follow along with me on social media as well. All right, so my guest today is Nick Simpson. Nick is the founder and CEO of Simpson Building Enterprises. So he graduated from Salisbury University's Purdue School of Business with a bachelor degree in business management. His entrepreneurial career started at the age of 12 with a lawn care business. Selling it prior to starting his undergraduate degree. This is pretty amazing. So, with the proceeds of the sale, he fully funded his college education, graduated in three years, and started investing in rental properties while in college with a focus on student housing. Welcome to the show, Nick.
0: Thanks for having me, Ellie. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, can you tell me a little bit about you know yourself and your background and how you started in real estate? Obviously. You know, your actual background is really interesting. You started your first company when you were 12. You know, after you sold the company, I would love to know kind of what brought you to real estate. So if you can elaborate a bit more about your background, that would be great.
0: Sure. it was in my freshman year of college and I had just sold the company and I was in the middle of trying to figure out exactly what would be next. And I picked up Rich Dad Poor Dad like so many other investors do, and I think it was a Saturday morning. I started and I finished it that day. I, I couldn't put it down, and that just kind of planted the seed. And about a year later, I ended up buying my first investment. It was about a thirty-five thousand dollars house. We ended up putting thirty thousand dollars into it, a lot of sweat equity. Spent a good amount of time, you know, with friends and family doing the painting, and, you know, all the the fixing of the house, and started renting it to college kids for the following year. And that house actually made pretty good return and then it turned into two, three, four, five, and and then I got into commercial and new construction. So it really started slowly and, and it's grown exponentially since then.
1: That's pretty amazing because you know, a lot of my guests actually the one thing that I hear them say over and over again is that I wish I started earlier. So I think with you you started as early as humanly possible, you know, when you got after you sold your company just, you know, around college, just starting there. I think a lot of people, including me, would have loved to start around that time. And it just takes time. I think a lot of us are used to, you know, going in the path of, you know, go to college, graduate, get a good job. And it takes so many of us years to figure out that this is not necessarily where we want to be. Not that it's, there's no right or wrong path, but for us, those who found that to be not the right path for us and we wanted to pivot, You know, I often hear the phrase, you know, or the sentence, I wish I had done it earlier. So, didn't have to wait that long. Well, interesting. So, you you mentioned you started with rental properties and then pivoted to student housing. And that's a good segue to talk about the asset portion of the interview today. Can you tell me a little bit about? student housing as an asset class, you know, what is attractive to you in student housing?
0: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that I like about student housing compared to other asset classes. One is it's it's very steady. And I started in the middle of a recession and was always able to be 100% occupancy year over year with my early investments. And I picked the university that was affordable so that even in tough times, the affordable universities tend to still do well. And I focused on Salisbury University and colleges that are owned by the state. So then I knew knew that they were going to be an ongoing concern for for a long time to come and really just wanted to provide a, a quality product to those students. And currently I'm working on a much larger project for Salisbury University. It's an 86 unit project in downtown. And we like that the property is is going to be positioned to be kind of the best-in-class property for the area so that we know that really, for the long term, we're going to be in a competitively positioned in the market. And we know that kind of just going forward, even though the, that we're in the middle of COVID, we're going to be doing just fine as far as leasing is concerned. So really, we like that it's just a, a stable, long-term type of investment.
1: Interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, you touched on on COVID a bit, which, you know, begs the question, do you think that now is the right time to invest in, in real estate in general and in development or, you know, student housing development in particular? You know, you have some investors that are saying, listen, this is real estate is stable and the likelihood of losing my money is not as high as any other investment type. And you have those investors that are more concerned about investing in real estate. What are your thoughts about, you know, kind of the, and and maybe we're kind of moving into a different section of the interview and talking about the strategy of development during COVID. But What are your thoughts about the timing right now when it comes to investing in student housing development?
0: So I think you got to look at the type of property in the student housing arena first. You need to make sure that you have a bed-to-bath parity. So that's really critical during COVID. You have to have one bed and one bathroom for every single individual. You see this, the colleges who have actually kind of started to make a lot of money off of housing by sticking two, three Sometimes even four kids in one room, they're actually struggling because now all of a sudden they have a you know a germ problem. So the off campus housing has really done well and done really well in the collections when they have that bed to bath ratio that's one to one. so that that's a starting point. Then you want to make sure that there's a lot of the amenities that they're looking for. You want to make sure that the properties that you're looking at are fully furnished. You want to make sure that there's an on property gym if it's large enough you know, make sure there's on property study rooms and kind of give them the tools to succeed on the property rather than having to travel back and forth to campus. That's like the short list of, of what you have to find in the student housing market right now. It, it was true before COVID, but it's it's really shown how important it is now that there's been pressure put on the assets. So those are the ones that are still performing. As far as collections go and, and long term, I don't foresee college being something that's disrupted. The the college students, they want to be at school. They at Salisbury University, they're back on campus now, and they were given the opportunity to have their own bedroom. Uh, If they wanted to, the school would give them their own bedroom. They had more kids call in and say, "I want to stay with my roommate because I've already made the arrangements for the the fridge or whatever it is that's in the the unit." They don't really care. They want to be back at college and have that college experience that they've been dreaming about for, you know, since they were little. And then, you know, whether or not it's safe, they, during the middle of COVID, I witnessed several parties that were, you know, hundreds of students in size and they they just always wanted to be together. So I think long-term student housing is probably going to be positioned quite well when the dust settles. I think it's important to focus on the items that we discussed as far as the assets concerned. And then as far as the school is concerned, Take a look at whether or not they're going to be in, you know, growing, or if they're going to be affordable. You know, some of these seventy, 000, eighty thousand dollars a year schools might have a little bit of issue getting enrollment to stay high. And then state-run universities typically, even though you know maybe their enrollment might go down, I've seen some in other states with smaller enrollments. I've seen those go down, but the state tends to put the aid in and make sure that the school continues to go forward. So some of those private colleges are going to maybe be a little bit harder for investors to get their, you know, mind around. So those are the top things that we look at when, when we're making an investment. And for our project, we since it's a new ground-up construction, we're checking all of those boxes and making sure that we really do deliver the students a really great product. And ideally, we're going to, well, we're coming online in 2022, and ideally, all of this is kind of behind us by then, so.
1: Yeah, Hopefully. And, and you know, it makes at least me feel a little bit better looking at a vacant building of, you know, newly built project and knowing that it is, we need to start leasing up now. And when I say now, I mean in two years, actually, that makes me feel a lot better than, you know, going into development at this point, because I know there's a lot of competition and you know, even current student housing, multifamily, whatever it is, all asset classes You know, some are doing better than others, but the new kid on a block right now, literally the new kid on a block, you know, my gut feeling is that it's probably better to be the new kid on a block, you know, a few years from now when the economy rebounds and when you're going to be in a different part of the cycle.
0: Yeah, I think it'll do well. We've seen historically that every time that new housing, especially in student housing, you know, students like the shiny new, the new thing. People do in general. And all of the, the new housing that we've seen, at least at this university, is, has been 100% occupied in year one. And we'll, we'll be really aggressive with getting in front of the students and making sure that they know that we're coming and doing a good job with our marketing. That's actually a lot of the fun in, in the development is, is actually getting to get the product out there. So.
1: Mm-hmm. And can you tell me, what do you do today to protect your investment during COVID? In terms of the strategy, is there anything different that, you know, have you tweaked your strategy today because of COVID?
0: So there's a couple different things that we really leaned on. One is the property manager. We're working with American Campus Communities on our project, and they're the largest operator in the country. They bring a lot of that operational excellence that we were looking for, and they bring a lot of Data to the table that really tells us what we need to focus on. So they have a lot of the sanitizing stations and they have a national partnership with Lysol that they, they have, and they have just some opening protocols that they put together that really kind of put our mind to ease that if we bring this online, even in 2022, it's going to be well positioned. The other side of it is we want to make sure that we're building exactly what we had talked about earlier, that to bath ratio, but one of the other things that we added was the ventilation for each apartment it's since it's a large building, we made sure that the the vents and the the fresh air for each apartment is not circulating throughout the building and it's individual apartments so that long term, if the sever is an issue we're we're really maintaining a, a sense of distance between the units i think that's actually going to be true with a lot of different properties not just student that'll probably be multifamily if it's not you know a garden style you know if you're talking to full big large kind of a high-rise building it'll be vented towards the out for the hvac uh, just to make sure that it's, it's individually you know getting fresh air.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think this is one of the things that will change in development, especially with high rises, but any multifamily, you know, just to make sure that when the next pandemic hit that and even, you know, we might not have another one in our lifetime and we might. It's kind of a roll of the dice, I think, I feel at this point. But I definitely think a lot of things are going to change when it comes to development, with you know student housing, multifamily, like you've mentioned, with HVAC structure. Also, retail is going to change completely. You're probably going to see more and more restaurants, especially in warm climates, that are maximizing the outdoor space and minimizing the indoor space. Maybe even you know, for a few you know, tables and the kitchen, but most of it is happening outside. So I think what we're going through is definitely going to change the way development, you know, is structured. I mean, how developers are thinking about the building, because now we never thought about, you know, a virus that that we need to adjust, you know, development to a virus. It was never, it never occurred to us that that's going to be something we'll have to deal with. And, you know, speaking of development, I want to touch a little bit about the process itself. Nick, can you walk me through the main kind of milestones when it comes to developing a student housing project?
0: Sure. So a couple of things that you got to make sure you hit are acquiring the land or at least getting options on it. And then getting your zoning in place for what you're planning to build. That could be a long process depending on the area. You know, if you're in California, you could be really looking at a long development timeline. New York City, long, long development timelines, and that's important to know. Like the local municipalities, and and get to know the people who are in charge and those decision makers, so that your development can be put on a fast track and, and approved. And that can also be getting out in front of the community. and In our case, it took us about two years to get all of the approvals. We're building the tallest building in our area. It's got a much greater density on the property and we also have a walking bridge that goes directly to the parking garage uh, that's city owned so that we have all of our parking for the students and all of those things take a long time to get through through the process of zoning so getting the options on the property and zoning is definitely paramount some other things that people might not realize is you're going to need to get the architect involved pretty early on but you don't need to get extremely detailed plans early on you just need to get a enough on the page that you can get a feasibility study done and is essentially like an appraisal but it gives you a really good understanding of the market how your product is going to fit and what you need to change before you go invest in this sometimes six figure even seven figure blueprints that can be very expensive to change if you do that really late in the process so getting something kind of like a schematic level drawing of the area of the building and in the area and what you're trying to build get your feasibility study done, get your zoning completed, and then go ahead and invest in those full CD level documents. And then you can actually start the fundraising and the bank financing process of this. So it, it can take a long time. And it's definitely a risk reward benefit. I definitely like the seeing the process. I like seeing the buildings come out of the ground. I think it's neat to shape communities, but there's definitely a balance to, to the time. You're going to, some people like to do only development. I like to be kind of 75% existing assets and 25% development, but everybody has their their fit.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so the new project you work on, the Ross, that has gone through all those stages. And where are you right now in this process? Because it seems like to me when it comes to development, when you just start out, it's high risk, high reward, because you don't know if you're going to get, you know, how long it's going to take to get the zoning and if you're even going to get it. And then as you move forward, obviously the risk is minimizing. So by the time you go to investors, you've already completed a big portion you know, of the project. So you as the sponsor, you take a lot more, you, know, you take most of the risk because you spent time and money and energy when there was dirt, there was nothing. Yeah. So where are you now, right now in the process?
0: So we've actually... Completed all of our zoning. We're a fully entitled shovel ready deal is kind of the words in the industry And what that means is we've gotten all of our zoning in place. We've acquired the site in our case We had three separate buildings that we acquired we've already demolished them and combined them into one full site and we've got all of our blueprints completed and those have gone off out to bid from all the contractors and then the general contractor issues what's known as a GMP, which is a guaranteed maximum price, shifts a lot of that risk over to them and it makes them shoulder that, makes the project come in at a certain guaranteed price. And typically you're going to work with somebody who's large enough to have that financial responsibility. You don't. You don't want to just hire the contractor down the road. And then you get your bank financing and make sure you have terms that are, acceptable that'll work for the deal. And you put together all of this in a nice package, and then you go out and get investors, and then you start construction. So we're at the stage where we're bringing in investors. We're putting the project out now that we're sure we're able to keep going forward at the end of this year. And we're expecting to start construction in late November, early December.
1: Wow. That's so different than multifamily than what I know. That's why I find it so fascinating because it's a completely different you know process and timeline and everything is so different and i think it's actually a good time to start developing because you're probably in a better position to get you know good pricing competitive bids from from a lot of the vendors and the contractors out there because there's probably not a lot of work for them probably at least some of the projects they've been working on or were expecting to start working on or are kind of on hold right now. So you're actually in the best position to get the best pricing, it seems, which, you know, brings me to kind of one of my last questions. What are the main, you know, challenges you see in, you know, running a project like this? And how do you plan to overcome them?
0: Well, you know, COVID was definitely a, a challenge. We didn't <laughs> expect that. And nobody did. So we just took it in stride. And we decided instead of going through with reckless abandon and just continuing the project, we decided to demo the existing buildings and, and stop at the land. So we had just completed the demo process and decided to hold because if we had gone forward and they had shut construction down like they did in Pennsylvania, we could have been two or three months behind the opening date. And and then I'm calling 300 kids and saying you're living in a hotel and and that's uh that's not something we wanted to do. So that was. You know, COVID aside, the risk as far as development is concerned, you want to take a look at who the GC is. Do they have experience building this type of building, whether it be a steel building or post-tension concrete building? Is it a high-rise or garden style? You want to make sure that they've done it before, that they have the team in place that really can excel so that you're not going to be late and so that the project is going to be built to the standard you expect. The other side of it is making sure you have a good architectural and engineering team behind you so that they can answer those questions that they specialized in and they can really be a part of your team. So I'm regularly talking with the architects, the attorneys, the engineers, all of these people that are surrounding me on this project. It really does take a very big team of people to get this across the finish line. So to minimize risk, it really does come down to the people involved and we have a really great team of different focuses. And, and I can go to each person whenever we have a problem and keep moving forward.
1: Awesome. The development was always interesting to me. You know, I don't know much about it, which is why I think that was, you know, great because I learned so much about it in the past, I would say 25, 29 minutes that we've spent together. So thank you so much for that. We've arrived to the lightning round questions. Are you ready, Nick? Absolutely. All right. So, number one, what's your favorite hobby besides working on this project?
0: I love to ski. My friends oh. do an annual ski trip. We drive up to Vermont. I think the driving up there with the friends is is half the fun. We we just have a good time. I, I like the beach because my friends are there. I'm not a not a huge water person, <laughs> but yeah, that those are my those are my two hobbies.
1: Got it. Well, that's awesome. What's the one thing that people don't really know about you and you're comfortable sharing on the podcast?
0: I think it's important to realize, I like the saying, it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. I think (laughs) a lot of people don't realize just how committed you have to be. And they kind of assume it's easy and you're just making things happen whether it be through your connections, but I don't think they realize just how many hours you have to put in and how many books you have to read. I just read My Being Too Subtle by Sam Zell. Definitely. I've read it twice now. I love it.
1: Great book. Amazing book. One of my favorites, actually.
0: Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. And, you know, it just takes time. So that's what I would say. Most people don't realize just how hard I do work. So... (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. All right. So I know you started super early as an entrepreneur at the age of 12, but what do you wish you would known when you just started out?
0: I wish I had picked up more books early on. I think it the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know kind of thing. And every time I pick up these really, really great books, like, like Sam Zell's book, you really realize how much you have to learn and the discipline that you can bring to it. I was definitely eager to just get started and do anything. I I didn't really have a direction. I was just anything to get the next deal in the door. I would have spent a little bit more time building the right business plan, making sure I was surrounded with the right people. And you know, that's a little bit contradictory to just get started. But getting started with reckless abandon, like it wasn't, I guess, terrible. It, It worked out. But I definitely could have been a little bit more planned and. I've definitely brought a lot of that discipline in over the years and tend to be a little bit more focused now on the strategy, but it's all lessons learned.
1: Yeah, I know. And if you like to read more about that, there's a great book by Gary Keller called The One Thing, and it really helps I have you have focus. That,
0: I have that in my audio. Have you read, I it? read it? No, I haven't. It's I, It just downloaded it. yet
1: yeah it's a great book it's all about how to focus on the thing that is going to help you grow your business the most and how not to be distracted by a million other things and i've implemented it in my business and it's just an amazing book
0: he definitely has a good track record i look forward to reading it all
1: right so nick what's your advice for somebody who wants to scale their business or their real estate portfolio
0: focus yeah i would say you gotta pick one asset class Or two, something that you get really good at, and really learn the people, the movers and shakers in that space. I found the more people I have that are really good at what they do in the space, the faster I can move. You know, it's not necessarily just your efforts; it's who you're surrounding yourself with. But if you're just doing all sorts of different asset classes, if you're looking at you know retail and industrial and multifamily, you you have no clear focus on what you can be really great at. And that tends to slow you down. So that's what I would recommend.
1: Mm -hmm. The focus. All right. Well, amazing. Thank you so much, Nick, for your time. And right before we go, if people want to reach out to you, talk to you about development or the project, the Ross, the project you were working on, where can people find you?
0: Yeah, they can always find me on my website at uh, SimpsonBuilding.com. You can also give me a call at 410-627-4592. 410 627 4592. I'm usually available and yeah, I'd like to talk to any investors who are looking at development.
1: All right, perfect. And we're gonna have your contact information in the show notes as well. So those of you who want to reach out to you and, and talk to you about development can do that also. All right, well, that's it for today. Thank you again, Nick, for your time. And for the audience, thank you so much for being with us today, tuning in and learning about development. Stay strong, you know, stay amazing and keep moving forward. I'll catch you on the next episode.